How much do you know about Georgia National Guard history? Join us on this episode of the Georgia National Guard Fence Post Podcast, where we delve into the histories and the mysteries of the Georgia National Guard. I'm your host, Private First Class Chastity Williams. And I'm Major William Carraway. I'm the historian of the Georgia National Guard, and I have the best job in the whole military because every morning I get to get up and come in and I tell the story of citizen soldiers and airmen, and I wouldn't change place with anybody else. So today I get the opportunity to share some of those stories with you about some of our guardsmen, service overseas, history of the organization of the guard, and a little bit about some of our past deployments. Why should we care about military history? Well, for uh, those of us in the National Guard, certainly uh, history is a substitute for experience, and that goes for all fields. I mean, if you're going to Uh, apply yourself to any profession. You don't have to go into that profession without the benefit of experience if you have looked into the history. I've always been interested in history, but what really crystallized it for me uh, was when I mobilized to Afghanistan in 2009. I was an infantry platoon leader with the 2nd Battalion, and we were stationed in a remote area of North Afghanistan. And it occurred to me, you know, I've got a platoon of soldiers, citizen soldiers, who gave up everything they were doing in civilian life to be here for us. You know, less than 1% uh, of the country serves. And I, as I was looking around, it, it occurred to me that, you know, if it's, worth, if it's worth them doing, then it's sure worth us remembering. And I apply that today to where, you know, our soldiers, our airmen, as they train, as they volunteer, as they join up, as they, whether they're conducting state missions or mobilizing overseas as several of our units just have and are preparing to do, if it's worth them doing, it's worth us remembering. History in the making. It's also uh, been said the only thing new in the world is the history you don't know. So, you, you know, we, the future is ungraspable, the present is gone like that, but we always have the lessons of history to guide us, guide us forward wherever you are in your career. Okay. So we should pride ourselves on learning and committing to it and starting and building our own history. Well, it would certainly, yeah, history has to be and is a, a important component of military leadership training, whether you're at basic combat training, the command general staff college, at all levels, uh, leadership and history go hand in hand. The, you know, the fundamentals are always going to be there through history. Okay. Well, speaking of structure, how did the National Guard come about? So uh, we're about to celebrate the National Guard birthday. December 13th, 1636 is what we mark as the birthday of the National Guard. And what happened on the 13th is that the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, issued an order that all of the militia would be called out and organized into three separate regiments. And so this was done the following year, but the order itself went out on December 13th. So every year on December 13th, we we celebrate that that initial uh, order instructing those citizen soldiers to call out uh, and to muster. And so various states or colonies at the time would have had a form of that militia system. And by the time uh, Georgia became a colony, uh, with, the, with the arrival of Lord James Oglethorpe in 1733, he was well familiar with the English militia system. And so one of the first things he did upon setting, setting foot on Georgia soil is you know, organize uh, the, those colonists into an effective militia. Basically coinciding with the founding of the colony would get its first test nine years later at the Battle of 
uh, Bloody Marsh, where uh, James Oglethorpe will lead a combined force of British regular soldiers and citizen soldiers, the militia. And in fact, it's one of those initial units in what would it be the first land conflict in the colony of Georgia. Uh, one of our own uh, Georgia National Guard units, its antecedent, took part in that engagement, and it's, it continues in service today as part of our 118th Field Artillery Regiment. How did the National Guard or that militia influence the creation or the possibility of having big army, big air force, et cetera, et cetera? Right, sure. So the National Guard serves concurrently, uh, has a national mission uh, where we can be called up to serve overseas. In fact, uh, in just the last two decades, we've had 30,000 soldiers and airmen who have been called to service overseas. Uh, but at the same time, those soldiers and airmen are available uh, for state emergencies. And most recently, that is that is uh, manifested itself in uh, responses to the uh, the COVID outbreak. Uh, you may traditionally think of the National Guard as responding in the wake of hurricanes, from Hurricane Katrina all the way up to uh, Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Dorian, uh, recent storms that have impacted. But uh, the always ready, always there. I mean, it's been it's been the the, the watchword uh, for the National Guard going back. With the founding of the United States of America, the question was, what are we, what is our military going to look like? And so George Washington in 1783 provided uh, what was called the Sentiments on Peace Establishments in 1783. And he basically outlined the recommendation that the United States have a small standing army. It's an economic, uh, you know, large standing armies are expensive to uh, maintain, train, and feed. Right. So it's much easier to maintain that uh, a, a militia element that can be called out at a minute's notice, the Minuteman, which is why you see elements of the Minuteman represented in National Guard logos. It calls back to that era where the, the citizen soldier with one hand on the plow and one hand on the rifle is always ready uh, to do either one, to respond to a civilian uh, career or it, when necessary to take up arms. Is it true that the National Guard and service members in the National Guard actually deploy more than big army or big air force, et cetera? I don't know that there's, I wouldn't say that it's, they deploy more often, but one of the things that has changed so much over the years is how often the National Guard units will deploy and where. Because if we go back to the early, the early days of the militia, we had the stand, small standing army. And so it, the small standing army was not large enough to handle larger conflicts. And so when the need arose, the, the, uh, the federal government or the states could call out those militia elements. And one of the, one of the cases that happened, War of 1812, once again, uh, our 118th Field Artillery uh, Regiment that had uh, fought in the Revolutionary War, uh, they were called out again for the War of 1812. In fact, they're one of just 24 National Guard units with a campaign streamer from uh, the War of 1812. But by the middle of the 19th century, uh, the Macon Volunteers, which had been organized in 1825, they were called to service for the Seminole War. And they were, uh, they were organized, mustered in Macon, and they, uh, they mobilized, traveled to Picolata, Florida. They were engaged uh, during the Seminole Indian War, and they would return and be mustered out. And the Macon Volunteers continues in service today as the headquarters company of our 48th Infantry Brigade Combat Team. So how are we mobilizing today? So the way a mobilization will work today, uh, you know, for a federal, like an overseas type of mobilization, right now we, we have several hundred soldiers and airmen 
mobilized overseas, and they're they're right now supporting missions uh, in support of all of our geographic commands. So, uh, geographic combatant commands from from the Pacific to Europe, all across the globe. And the way that'll happen is there will be a notice uh, come down that a given unit with a given mission will be required, and then that 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 National Guard unit will train up, be prepared for the deployment cycle, and when the time for them to mobilize comes, off they go. Uh, where that you were, it was not just, oh, the National Guard is deployed. No, it was part of the expectation because we make up uh, a large portion of a lot of the military capabilities. In the Army, uh, particularly uh, a large portion of our logistical and transportation capabilities is resident in the reserve component. And fundamentally, you know, you know I'm infantry and infantry fights, but the infantry isn't going to do much fighting for very long if they're not adequately sustained and provided with supply. And so the National Guard plays key roles all across uh, all across the uh, military roles from infantry, the 48th Infantry Brigade Combat Team, uh, support elements, uh, the Georgia Air National Guard with their with their ability to uh, transport uh, supplies globally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that has been the case for, for decades. It hasn't always been the case. The, uh, the modern, and when I say modern, let's, let's just say that from, the, uh, from September 11, 2001 forward, uh, it, we have had our units have mobilized with the mobilization cycle. The 48th Brigade, I believe, is on their fourth, uh, have deployed four times overseas. Several, several of the Georgia National Guard units and soldiers and airmen have mobilized. I mean, Georgia Air National Guard has been mobilized continuously uh, with their J-STARS mission. They have flown the J-STARS mission, which is just wrapped up, but they have flown that for more than two decades. I think it was something like 14,000 sorties. Unique mission. There is no one else in the military, National Guard, Reserve, Air, whatever, that's flying that mission, and that's all been resident here in Georgia. So the, you look at the state of the National Guard today, and it's almost unfathomable to look back and consider what, what a mobilization might have looked like. Consider the Spanish-American War, as an example, 1898. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the Secretary of War uh, passes to the governor, says, you shall raise three regiments. The governor says, okay, here's, I have an allotment for three regiments. Uh, I need people to sign up and serve in these three regiments. And so uh, members of the National Guard will then, many of them signed up to join the first, second, and third Georgia Volunteers. Now again, going back to transportation and logistics, problem we had, we did the problem wasn't having citizen soldiers from Georgia that wanted to serve. The problem was how do you feed them, equip them, and transport them? So what we ended up with, we had two infantry regiments, a field artillery battalion, and I believe uh, and another unit that made it as they made it to the training camps, but they never got transportation out of there. One of our regiments, it was the second Georgia Volunteer Infantry, which you know today that's our 121st Infantry Regiment, made it as far as Tampa, but there were no ships available to get them across. Our third Georgia Volunteer Infantry Regiment made it to Cuba for occupation duty, and so they, with with them uh, uh, crossing from uh, Tampa over to Cuba, in 1898 they became the first uh, Georgia National Guard unit to uh, serve overseas. Do you have like a tidbit or a story or? someone in history that we can focus on to kind of get a, a glimpse into what they could have experienced? It's one of the ones I always kind of come back to is a, a soldier by the name of Robert Gober Burton. And I transcribed about 360 some odd letters that he had written 
uh, during the war. So I really, really got to know Robert Gober Burton pretty well from his letters home, describing his experiences in World War One. So I would say uh, he's he's a he, to me he really epitomizes what the National Guard is all about. It's every single person in the National Guard, uh, Army National Guard, Air National Guard, they they have other things to do outside of military service, uh, be it going to school, uh, continuing their civilian career, but at the same time they've raised their right hand and sworn to defend the Constitution and the people of the United States of America and the citizens of Georgia, be it a time of national or local emergency. Since you've had the chance to kind of get to know Robert a little personally, more than we have, and we got a glimpse of his insight and his story, how can we learn from that? How can the National Guard, how can we take his experiences or take the history and move forward with it? I'm glad you you framed the question that way because you, you have to look at history not just as an aggregate of units, but also this, the individual soldier experience because here's second corps, here's such and such corps. Well, all of those corps or divisions were composed of individual soldiers or individual airmen uh, and all of their ability on the battlefield was determined by how much can I carry? How much did I have to eat? What is my morale? Uh, how do I feel about being here? We can look at uh, what happened to this company of soldiers uh, that were that swore into service in 1898 and then were mustered and sent to Tampa where a bunch of them got typhoid because there weren't any any ships to be able to get them further on. We can look at the soldiers of the 31st Division and the train-up process and how long it took to get them the necessary supplies, get them the shipping, get them uh, registered and ready to deploy for World War One. We can look at World War Two, where we had uh, we had close to 6,000 Georgia National Guard soldiers mobilized. And that's another difference between how mobilizations are done now versus then. I mean, we, we don't have a general mobilization. We have a unit mobilizes here. Like we'll have a military police unit. We'll, we'll mobilize, go over, do a military militia, police mission, come back. Well, in World War II, if you were in the Georgia National Guard, you were mobilized September 16, 1940. And some of the other units would come later on. But the basic idea was, okay, you're in the National Guard, you're available for federal mobilization, and this is the time when we need you. And so close to 6,000 citizen soldiers in Georgia answered that call. World War II was also when we got our first air element, really the forerunner of the Georgia Nas Air National Guard, and that would be the 128th Observation Squadron, which was formed up here in Georgia. They were originally an anti-submarine unit uh, that operated here out over and flew anti-submarine missions over the Gulf of Mexico before they were converted, redesignated, and sent to Europe where they flew uh, B-17 bomber missions over Europe. And so from, uh, from that post-World War II reorganization of the Georgia National Guard, you had all of these soldiers and airmen coming back with this combat experience. So the notion that, you know, the National Guard, oh, it's just a bunch of, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Well, you know, we have that, bio you go back to that biography of the, when the Georgia National Guard reorganized in 1946, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't throw a rock in, in a staff meeting and not hit somebody that had, that had been uh, with the 121st in the Hurtgen Forest, that had, mm -hmm. that had earned the Presidential Unit Citation with our 101st Coast Artillery uh, in New Guinea, that had served with the 214th uh, Field Artillery providing the air defense 
over Guadalcanal. I mean, this breadth of experience really was the, the, that, that seed of what uh, General Cardin, our adjutant general, refers to today as the leadership factory. It's not a, a recent innovation. I mean, we have generations and generations of leaders, of experience, and of mobilizations that we can go to and learn from and that, that impact what we're doing today and really uh, impact what we'll be doing going forward. So what will the future hold for the Georgia National Guard? Well, uh, again, you know, you know, what does the future hold? Well, let's look at the past. What changes have we had? It's the nature of the National Guard and military forces in general to change, to adapt, to be more ready and more relevant. And where, where that's happened in the past is, you know, from 1946 to 1968, Georgia was home to the 48th Infantry and Armor Division. You know, we didn't have a brigade, we had the division. So now we have the 48th Infantry Brigade Combat Team. Uh, you know, in the past we had a the 108th Anti-Aircraft Artillery Brigade. We don't have an anti-aircraft artillery brigade anymore. Uh, we look at uh, the Georgia Air National Guard, and they are even just this just uh, within the last couple of weeks they have uh, they have sunset from the J Stars mission, that unique mission that they've flown for more than two decades. Mm -hmm. And we look at that is is this unprecedented in the history? Well, the length of the mission certainly is, but the fact that our Air National Guard has been agile and one of the one of the benefits we have here in Georgia is that uh, the leadership has has postured us for that for that uh, future in in a number of ways. Uh, Georgia's always one of the top states in terms of strength management and that will continue going forward. We're always going to continue to adapt, continue uh, to uh, take on new unit structure, new missions and Georgia's uniquely postured for that in a number of ways. Uh, we're perennially on top of strength management, uh, meaning recruiting and retention. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, military leaders know that if if you got a new unit, got a new mission, well, Georgia's going to have the people available to staff it. We also uh, have regularly rotated some of the most experienced uh, combat leaders. You know, are in leadership. You got folks that you know again from the past two decades. We're very similar similar in that regard to where we were post-World War II with all those seasoned platoon company and battalion level uh, commanders and on the air side of those squadron commanders and so forth that had served in World War II well, you know, and had had years of combat experience. Well, you know, you look through the echelons from uh, from folks coming in today, being part of continuing overseas deployment to the top of the ranks, where we have, you know, from from the adjutant general, the commanding generals, all the way down, have commanded those units and and deployed and mobilized overseas. So we've got a depth uh, that we probably haven't had in a long time. You know, I'd, I'd hold the the post World War II, any any post war uh, generation up with our current generation as far as its readiness. Mm -hmm. But uh, where we have the current advantage is that a unit mobilizes today, it comes back, it doesn't have to undergo a lengthy reorganization process. Right. So it seems Georgia, or the National Guard in general, has a history of fostering and being able to have adaptability, um, priding the soldiers on being representatives of the community as well as being a representative of the Georgia National Guard, both on the air side as well as the Army side. Yeah, and that adaptability, uh, the adaptability and that, that dual purpose mission, state and federal, has served us well over the years. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Georgia National Guard Fence Post Podcast. And thank you, Major Caraway, for sharing and being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Real quick, where can we find more information? 
So uh, best way to find us, uh, we do have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash GA Guard History. So Guy Guard History. And that is the landing page where we'll post uh, our blog stories, photographs. We got an online image album with uh, about 1,200 images on it, stuff from 1700s all the way up to what happened yesterday. Thank you, Major Caraway. And we will definitely check out the link to the Facebook. Also, make sure you like, share, and subscribe. And we drop a podcast every first Friday of the month. So be sure to check it out.